Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Lord, we thank you for your precious word. We thank you for the privilege, Lord, of, of you revealing yourself to us, of you not just giving us a kind of a, a, an outline sketch, but Lord, filling in and giving us an understanding of who you are and helping us understand who we are in light of you. And Lord, also helping us understand what it is that you have called us to and the gospel that you have prepared for us. Lord, we, we are in awe of the fact that you would love us enough to reveal these things to us. So Lord, allow us this morning to take your word seriously and to see that it is for us and that it is very relevant to the life that we live now. So Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just begin by reminding you about what we talked about last week. If you remember, chapter 11 was the beginning of uh, this 10th plague. And in that section of scripture, what we find is God and his sovereignty exercising or promising justice for the hard-hearted oppressor. And that, of course, was Pharaoh and ultimately his people. And that 10th plague there was explained for us in anticipation of the actual exercise of that plague, which is yet to come. Now, as we look at chapter 12, we'll see God's instructions regarding the Passover. And ultimately, we will see that this text points to Christ as our Passover. Now, I think what is shocking uh, to the readers of this is that in chapter 11, we see the favor of God toward Israel. But then as we turn to chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, we see not the favor of God toward Israel, but we see the wrath of God. See, what is clear is that Pharaoh is guilty. He's a cruel tyrant who tried to destroy the people of Israel. We also recognize here that Egypt is guilty. They should have repented and not gone along with their king. But what is shocking here is that Israel is also guilty. They are under the wrath of God. They are under the sentence of death. Now, God may have protected the children of Israel with the first nine plagues, but now they face the same wrath that both Pharaoh and the Egyptians face. And friends, they are guilty for a number of reasons. Now, it might be difficult for us to understand all of this. We have a picture of God that is often distorted. He's a God of love, mercy, and grace and favor, and he is. But we have this attitude that his anger and his wrath are just reaction to man's behavior. But friends, we have to understand that, that they both are working together. Both God's favor and his wrath are fully and rightfully part of the nature and the character of God. They're not opposed to each other, but they work hand in hand. So the question for us here is this, why does Israel also face God's wrath? Well, if we look locally in the text, we will notice that they had rejected the prophet of God. And that was Moses when he came to them with the word from God. 
And ultimately, they rejected what he was saying. This is the the leaders of at least the the Jews at that point in time. They said in chapter 5, verse 21, The Lord look on you and judge, uh, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They weren't happy with Moses. But not only that, in, in the, the book of Joshua, we kind of have a, a flashback to this time. And in, in Joshua, this is what we read. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was, I got the wrong verse there. But the, all right, the real passage talks about the fact that they were worshiping the idols in Egypt. Well, not only that, and this is probably, this is far more important as what we find in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Friends, this ultimately is the main problem. This is their heart condition. This is true of all people. Therefore, they were guilty sinners, just like the Egyptians. It is because we are sinners that we sin. So I say it's not because we're sinners that we sin. It's because we we sin because we are sinners. We have a nature, a sinful nature, and that then produces sin. So the sin that Israel committed, yes, it was bad, but that sin was evidence of their sinful condition. And that's the real issue, friends. And that is true not only of Pharaoh, It is true of Egypt, it's true of Israel, and friends, ultimately we need to recognize and understand that is also true of us. Here's what the scripture says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. And so that all category includes Israel, and it includes us. And so, friends, we need to understand that we are no different. We are all people who deserve the wrath of God. And in order for anyone to be saved, they must see not their goodness, because that's a faulty understanding of themselves, but their utter guilt before God. That means they are depraved. That's the doctrine of man's depravity, that anything he does is always tainted with sin. Why? Because that's his nature. And so we must see that we are ultimately under God's wrath, the same wrath God has toward Pharaoh and Egypt or those who would be considered ungodly. So what is this text teaching Israel? What's it teaching us? And this is where we get to the proposition for this morning. We're learning in this text that the wrath of God is averted through the blood of the Passover lamb. The wrath of God, the just, righteous wrath of God is averted through the blood of the Passover lamb. Now, friends, the wrath of God, God's judgment against sin, is on the racist and the rioter, is on the law abider and the law enforcer, is on the oppressed and the oppressor, is on the Republican, the Democrat, the Libertarian, you fill in the blank. 
It is on the churchgoer, the mosque attender, the synagogue and temple worshiper. The wrath of God is poured out on mankind because they have a nature that is sinful. And because they have a sinful nature, they are separated from God. They have to face the consequences of their sin, which is death. And God's wrath then is against all ungodliness and wickedness. And you and I are not good enough to be put off that list. But God has made a way to avert his wrath. And it's only through the blood, the blood of the sacrifice, ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ, where God's wrath is averted. Now this text contains a significant point in the development of Israel as a people, as a nation. I want to draw your attention to verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the congregation of Israel. Now here's some things that I think are really important as a backdrop to us understanding the Passover. This is, first of all, a new beginning a new beginning for Israel. This is a new calendar. God now speaks and establishes this new beginning for his people, marked by a change in the calendar. This is now called the month Abib, which later became the month Nisan. It is to be the beginning month on their calendar. The Passover was the mark of the end of life as they knew it in Egypt, and it was the beginning of this new nation of Israel. So this, friends, is very significant for the nation of Israel, or the people of Israel, as the nation in particular. This would be like the USA changing its calendar to begin with July because it wanted to celebrate and emphasize the importance and the remembrance of its independence. This is the beginning of Israel's Independence Day, so to speak. It's Passover. It's Exodus. So it's a new beginning. Secondly, it's a new identity. You'll notice in this text, and actually through this text and through the book of Joshua, this expression, the congregation. You see, It's used over a hundred times in that section between Exodus and Joshua. When you see those words, you know that something significant is about to take place. Tell the congregation. Something important is going to be communicated. Something important that's valuable is going uh, going to be brought forward to that group of people, which of course is Israel. So it's an expression that can refer to really three groups. All of Israel, the the congregation as a whole, It can also refer to at times as all the adult males in Israel. And it can also refer to the representative leaders in Israel. All right, in other words, those who are leaders of the tribes of Israel. Now, understand this. Um, Moses didn't have a Twitter account or a Facebook account or email. All right, so what he would have to do is he would have to kind of figure systematically how to get the information out. So he would gather the leaders of the tribes and he would gather them together and say, this is what the Lord says. And then they would go back to their people and they would repeat what Moses would say. That's what we have going on here in this text. But note that up until this time, God's children have been identified as Hebrews, as the people of God, 
as my people and as the children of Israel. But now they're called a congregation. Now they're called a community. So now they have a new identity as a new nation, as a new people, in a new time, with a new hope. <laughs> so we have this new beginning, this new identity. There's a third one here, and that is what we're going to see next, and that's this new priority, the Lord's Passover. And we see the Passover explained in chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. We see the Passover celebrated in chapter 12, verses 21 through 28. And we see the Passover instituted in chapter 12, verses 43, 51. Instituted as something that's going to take place on and on and on throughout the life of the people of Israel. And one significant fruit of the observation of the Passover is that it brought a central unity to the congregation. They would now be a nation celebrating the Passover together in remembrance of God's dealings with them in Egypt. Now with that backdrop, um, we want to come to our text and dig further into the emphasis of this text, which teaches us that the wrath of God is averted through the blood of the Passover lamb. And in this text, we can see that it's divided into three sections. There's the sacrifice, which is verses 1 through 7. There's the meal, and there's the judgment. So let's jump in now and look at preparing the sacrifice. The Passover is first a sacrifice. And we need to note what is being said here about this Passover. First of all, a lamb must be chosen. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. So the size of the lamb was based on the size of your household. And the point is that people were to be welcomed in households is to make up a number, uh, enough people so that it can justify actually serving this lamb for all the people. So if you're, a, you know, if you're single or maybe you're a couple and you don't have any children, one lamb is going to be way too much food for you. So it forced the people of Israel then to come together and to exercise hospitality and to join together in the, 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 the partaking of this meal. So there again, there's this unity that's taking place within this congregation. There's this joining together. So if you're a large family, you welcome smaller households to join you. So a lamb was chosen based on need and the size of the household. But then it was also chosen by the quality of the lamb. Notice again, verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goat. So again, here we have four specifications relating to the choice of the lamb. And I'm going to begin by saying it's from the sheep or the goat. So it could be a sheep or it could be a, a young goat. All right? It, it has to be, though, without blemish. God required that you give him the best of your flock. He understands human nature. Human nature wants to give the, oh, I'll, I'll give you the, you know, the, the, the smallest piece of the pie, go ahead and take it, because I want the biggest one, right? We understand that. God says, no, no, no. I 
deserve the best, and you are to bring me the best. So it's a spotless lamb, a lamb without blemish, not the mangy, sickly runt of the flock. It needs to be a male, and it needs to be a year old, one-year-old lambs or goats that are full-grown. And it's, he's just saying that this is, the, this is the lamb that it's in its prime. So this is saying you must give God your best, not the leftovers. He's getting here now to the heart of what it should be in the people as they are choosing this lamb. So secondly, not only a lamb must be chosen, but then a lamb must be kept. Verse, verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So this is a total of four days, the 10th day to the 14th day. Now why, why for four days? What's the purpose behind that? Now, here's the reality. We're not told specifically, okay? But likely the main purpose was to make sure that this lamb actually was unblemished. If it was around the house and it was there with, you know, with the kids and the family, it could be inspected and they could be sure that this was an unblemished lamb. So there was this idea of testing. It would be tested over a period of time. Not only that, there might be even some bonding taking place. I don't know about you, but a one-year-old lamb is probably cute and fuzzy. And I'm sure the kids would be playing with it. And so I'm sure that there would be some bonding going on. And that's all a part of the process. Now, we're not told those things, but I think those are natural things that would take place. So when it came time to actually sacrifice that lamb, there would be a suffering on the part of the people as they sacrifice that animal. And friends, the idea here is this, that this is not nothing uh, thoughtless or careless or cavalier. The Israelites were to approach this with thoughtfulness, with carefulness, and with great respect. So a lamb must be chosen, a lamb must be kept. Third, a lamb then must be slain. And again, at the end of verse 6, it says, When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, I just there's, there's a togetherness here, isn't there? The whole assembly is doing this together. Now, what I found very, very interesting as we are considering our particular situation right now is that we are all sheltered in place. We're in homes. We're gathered together. We're gathered together having a service together remotely, but we're in our various homes, but we're united together, even though we're separated, right? And so here you have God's people who are in all these different homes in the land of Goshen, having their own, their own Passover preparation and meal and sacrifice. And yet they are one assembly, united together with the same purpose, but not only that, there's, the same, there's this timing at twilight. Literally means between the evenings, but we get some clarification from Deuteronomy 16 and verse 6 where it says, in the evening at sunset. So there was this idea, everyone could see, okay, the sun's just about to set, now it's time to offer the sacrifice. Now think about it, not only did the lamb have to be killed, but it had to be skinned, it had to be cleaned, it had to be roasted for the meal. Right? Now friends, 
the killing of the animal wasn't unique. It might seem unique to us because most of us don't live in an agrarian context or with cattle. I mean, for us uh, to actually have to kill a sheep or a goat or even chickens would be somewhat squeamish. I think most of us in our congregation would say, no, I'm going to let someone else do that. We're just not used to it. But what was significant is what we read next. Yes, the sacrifice had to die. But more than that, it's what they did after the sacrifice was killed. And notice what it says. The lamb, then, and its blood must be applied. It wasn't sufficient for the lamb to be killed. The blood had to be applied to the doorpost and to the lintel or the, the mantle over the door. Right? Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now the idea is that when the Lord passed through Egypt to execute the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn, the blood would be a sign that said, those people in that household believe. Now hear this. Israel has had nine plagues to say, this is our God. We can believe him. We need to believe him. In other words, the plagues were not just for Egypt. Yes, they were. God was saying, I'm going to make myself known. But he's also making himself known to Israel so that when they come to this 10 plague, they're saying, you have proved yourself over and over and over and over again. And if you say, this is what this last judgment is, and we are under your wrath, we are going to believe you and we're going to follow through by putting the blood on the doorposts and on the mantle. So they would believe, and the Lord's wrath would be averted, and he would pass over that particular house. Now, friends, there's a pattern of sacrifices in Scripture, and it's helpful for us just to see this pattern, to, to grasp why, why Exodus chapter 12 is so significant. Exodus chapter 12 is not an island in and of itself. It is part of a a broader picture of this idea of sacrifice. So we want to go back a little bit just to recognize that there was a sacrifice for one person. There certainly was the sacrifice that, that um, was brought by, um, by Abel, and that was a just sacrifice. It was a bloody sacrifice, whereas Cain brings a grain sacrifice. But then there's also this sacrifice involving Abraham and Isaac, where God provides this lamb. So you, you have this picture then beginning that the sacrifice was for one person. But now as we move to chapter 12, the sacrifice is for one household. But then you jump to Leviticus chapter 16, and you realize that there is a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the nation. And then you get into the Gospels, in particular John chapter 1, where John the Baptist comes out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's pointing, of course, to Jesus, the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So this is the sacrifice for the world that ultimately would take place on the cross. The book of Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says this, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name 
has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. See, the, the Lamb of God is, is this picture, this sacrifice that begins kind of in a small way in the Old Testament, but builds and ultimately lands on Jesus Christ on the cross. And our celebration of the Lord's Supper is a reflection of this Passover meal. And Jesus makes that point in the Last Supper, in the upper room. Now, of course, Jesus is our perfect male, spotless lamb. The perfection of Israel's lamb was physical, but the perfection of Christ is moral. He was sinless. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 27 says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Christ. So this pattern, friends, helps us then to realize that what's happening in the book of Exodus is taking us on a trajectory that finds its ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ the Messiah hanging on the cross and dying as that sacrifice once for all, shedding his blood for the sin of mankind. Now, as we think about this, there's two important theological words that, that we need to draw our attention to, or two theological concepts maybe would be a better way to put it. First of all, there's this word called propitiation. You've probably heard it before, you've probably used it before, but it's a word that means that which satisfies God's wrath. And here's one passage where we see that taking place. And of course, it's referring to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But here we have Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following. And, and we find here Paul saying, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest or made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, you see the connection that we're seeing even in our text here. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received then by faith. So this death of Jesus Christ on the cross is a satisfaction for God's wrath. And we move back now to this lamb that we have here in this Lord's Passover in Exodus chapter 12. That, that lamb is a propitiation. It is a temporary sacrifice for those who are offering this sacrifice. And of course, the sacrifices would continue and they would all be temporary appeasements, temporary satisfactions until one sacrifice, the sacrifice comes, and that is Jesus Christ himself. So friends, it's, it's important for us to understand some of the, the thinking that's going on here and how it fleshes out through the word of God. And so in this text, Jesus, oh, this text is saying that Jesus' bloody death on the cross satisfies the requirements to avert God's wrath. Nothing else will, friends. Your good deeds, your fighting for justice, that won't satisfy God's wrath. 
Why? Because we're all under God's wrath. You think that you're good simply because of maybe who you are, where you came from, your socioeconomic situation. That doesn't change it. It doesn't matter who you are. You are under God's wrath. And there's only one way that that wrath will be averted. And that is through the satisfaction that comes through Jesus Christ as our or God's propitiation, the one who satisfies the need for that. Now, this moves us then to another one. And this is called penal substitutionary atonement. I know it's big theological words, but friends, this is really, really important. And the the reason I say it's really important is not because I'm some theological freak. This is basic Christianity 101, but basic Christianity 101 is losing ground in certain places because people do not affirm the penal substitutionary atonement. And you've got to listen clearly and listen carefully to what they're saying. Here's what penal substitutionary atonement means, and I'll go backwards. Atonement means to be made right, to have a relationship brought back together. So when someone says, you know, I have to do something to atone for my sins, the point is this has to be done so that the relationship can be reconciled. So this speaks about how we can be in right relationship with God. There must be an atonement to bring relationship. All right? Secondly, substitution. In other words, one person taking the place of another. In this case, the lamb would take the place of each individual in the household where the doorpost had been painted with blood. That lamb represents them symbolically. Okay? And that lamb is taking the brunt of that wrath in their place. It is their substitute. And then the word penal communicates the idea of punishment or a payment that must take place. So, friends, you put all these together, penal substitutionary atonement. Friends, this is a very important doctrine because it's throughout Scripture. It is the heart of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what we believe. Without it, there is no hope. And yet, as we go out, as we you know, are on our computers and we're, we're doing things online and we're trying to maybe find information about different people, you'll hear different ideas about what Jesus Christ has done and who he is and what Christianity, in quotes, is about. Some would say, this comes again from Christian circles, some would view this penal substitutionary atonement as divine child abuse. In other words, that God the Father, how would he, how could he inflict such violence on his son? It's unconscionable, they would say. Some others would say that this doctrine enslaves and oppresses man. And this is the heart of what is known as liberation theology. And friends, this is one of the things that's coming out, even with our current situation. There's a view of Christ that is distorted, that's wrenched out of its context. And he's, he's kind of a revolutionary now. And he went to the cross, and he went to, to the cross, and he won on the cross for you. So now be like him. Well, hold on a second here. Scripture doesn't say that Jesus went to the cross to be a revolutionary. He went to the cross 
to die a sacrificial death. Those are two separate things. Other people would say that the emphasis in Scripture is on following the example of Jesus. He was a good prophet, a good man. He's a worthy example for us all. And I don't disagree with all those things being true about who Jesus is. But Jesus didn't come into the world to be a worthy example. He didn't sit down with his disciples and say, look, the reason I'm here is because I want to be an example to all of you and to everyone else. No, he said to his disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem. And when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be mocked and I'm going to be scorned and I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the tomb. Now, was he an example? Yes, but he didn't come just to say, I'm an example, do everything like me. Now, friends, we've got we to be careful with that. He came into the world to go to a cross and die for the sin of mankind. His sacrificial death is primary. His worthy example is secondary. Without his penal substitutionary atonement, Jesus is nothing more than a good man who believed in a good cause and was willing to die for it. But friends, Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there is no removal of sins. Let me just remind you, the disciples with the cultural understanding of that day were expecting a Messiah to come and to revolt and to overthrow Rome, the oppressor. Now we understand that Jesus is all about justice, but he didn't come and overthrow Rome. He came to meet the real need, the greater need. That is not the earthly circumstances, but your eternal circumstances. And so friends, we need to be able to discern this. And what's happening and what can happen so easily is that the gospel turns into this new kind of gospel that is so earthly focused that we lose what Jesus Christ actually came to do, and that is to die on the cross and to pay for our sins. Now, the caveat there is this. We don't neglect what happens on this earth and the justice that Jesus talks about by simply focusing on the penal substitutionary atonement. But we see the justice in light of that, and we flesh it out accordingly as we can for the glory of God. So friends, Jesus came to die not to gain likes on Facebook. He came to take your place, not to be liked, not to be popular in this world. I remember you know, back in the 80s, um, this popular slogan came out, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? And although there were some good things about it that I think were helpful to some degree in, in Christian culture, too many people claim that Jesus would act in a certain way. Jesus became then a tool to promote a political agenda or ideology, personal beliefs and preferences, social practices and behavior. You know, ultimately, what I want, regardless of what Jesus thinks, but framed in Christian terms. And it could be used kind of as a, as a guilt trip. Well, what would Jesus do? Well, friends, there are a lot of things that we face in life where we have no idea what Jesus would do. 
I mean, would, would Jesus choose the Cheerios over the Captain Crunch? Absolutely not, because Captain Crunch is better than Cheerios, right? Would Jesus choose a, you know, a tomato that's aroma tomato uh, over just a, a regular tomato? No, don't, we don't know. But you see how this is. We, we use expressions like that, and we use Jesus then as a tool to kind of force our own agenda. And that's one of the things that came out that was not healthy whatsoever, because here's what's happened. Our frameworks then influence the answer to that question. What we want, what in our hearts is we're driving at, then takes Jesus and forces him into that mold that we've created him to be. And friends, we can't do that. We just gotta let scripture speak. The real question isn't what would Jesus do, because oftentimes we don't know what he would do. The real question is, what did, uh, why did he come? And what did he say? And then what did he do? Not what would he do. That's open for anyone's you know, contemplation and decision. But what did he do? Why did he do that? What did he say? What does Paul say in, to the Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, here's what he says. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Not Christ, our revolutionary, or Christ, our fill-in-the-blank. He is our Passover lamb. And friends, he came to die on the cross in your place as that promised sacrifice. He came to set you free through his shed blood. He came to bring you into new life in the family of God. So here we have the sacrifice that must be made. Secondly, we want to move now into not only the Lord's sacrifice, which was what we had just seen, but now the Passover is also, secondly, a meal. Now I have a I have a, a large extended family and I enjoy getting together with that large extended family. And usually when large extended families get together, there's lots of good food. And depending on the time of the year, the food can be all sorts of different things. Now, some portions of the year, like New, you know, New Year's Day and stuff, I try and avoid family. You know, I make this thing called menudo and it's like, oh, I don't know about it. But, you know, but if we're doing like carne asada or if we're doing um, you know, something at, at Easter or something at Christmas, the food is plenty. It's wonderful. I really enjoy that kind of thing. Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, birthdays, anniversaries, graduations. Um, these are times when we, we hope, I know we've forgotten about it for a few months here, but we, we hope that we can get together and we can celebrate and we can enjoy some yummy, plentiful food. But friends, what we have in this text is not a celebratory meal. People are not gathering in homes saying, congratulations to us. That's not what's going on here. This is an unexpected meal. It's not the kind of meal that Israel was used to. This is new to them. It's not the kind of meal that you would serve when your friends came over. You wouldn't choose this. No, it was a unique meal to be eaten in haste. So let's focus a little bit here on the uniqueness of this meal. They shall eat the flesh at night roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So first of all, it's roasted. Now, you know, the roasting may be a picture of, of, of God's wrath being poured out. Certainly that could be part of the picture here. But I think in the context of what's going on here, the, the emphasis in this text is on the urgency of the meal being cooked as well as being eaten. And roasting is faster than boiling and, of course, not as fast as eating it raw, right? But it had to be roasted. The unleavened bread, that reminded them of the readiness to flee. They didn't have time to put the yeast in there. There are other symbolic things going on there, but, but this meal not only had to, be, had to be cooked, but it had to be eaten and eaten fast. Bitter herbs, of course, that reminded them of the bitter suffering that they experienced in Egypt. And then you'd have to burn the remains. All of that sacrifice, all of the, the meal had to be consumed, either eaten as part of the meal or burned by fire. Nothing was to be left or used for anything else. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't go and take some lamb jerky with you on this trip. The meal wasn't so that they would get the proper nutrients for the journey ahead. No, it was, it was to picture the uniqueness and the urgency of the meal. Now, let's consider the urgency. In the same manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So the households were to eat the meal together, and they are to have their belts fastened, sound on their feet, staff in their hand. In other words, they're ready to go. At a moment's notice, you know, when, when, when it's time to leave, they can go. So the question, you know, were they even sitting down? Are they standing up? They're, they're, they're all ready to go. Now, friends, we need to step back and just ask ourselves a number of questions here. 400 years is a long time to be enslaved. That's 20 generations living and dying in slavery. In other words, the history of the people, as far as they could remember 400 years, has always been slavery. They don't take vacations and travel the world. They aren't indulging in hobbies on the weekend. They aren't buying and selling and moving into new neighborhoods and getting ahead in this world. No, they're slaves. That's what slaves do making brick, laying brick as slaves. They lived their lives at the whim of their taskmasters, and they did it for 400 years. Now let's put this in perspective. The Mayflower arrived with the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock in 1620. That's 400 years ago. Think of all the events and battles and history that has taken place during that time on these American lands. Our country is almost 250 years old, and yet we are relatively a young country compared to others. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you go to places in Europe and you're looking at buildings that are 1,500 years old, and you're looking at all the special buildings in our country, and they're like, you know, 150 years old. It's, it's not the same. 
but 400 years is a long time. 250 years is a long time. So for Israel on this day, something significant happens. An end to their slavery is going to take place with this meal and the context around this meal. Freedom is at the door. Truly, it is on the door by virtue of the blood being applied. And the emphasis here, you note this, it is the Lord's Passover. You just exclamation point there. That's what he's saying. This is for the Lord. I want you to notice here, this is like a punch in the text. This is God's way of saying, this meal isn't catered for you. You want potatoes and carrots with your lamb? Look, it's not about you. This is for me. Yes, ultimately it's for you, but this is for my glory. This is the meal that I am saying you are to have. So it's not catered around your likes and dislikes. God's saying it's for my purposes. This belongs to me. My friends, this is not the kind of meal we would want to be a part of. This isn't about your comforts and your preferences. This isn't grandma's favorite cooking and you're going to get your fill. No, this is the Lord's Passover. And in the Lord's Passover, we're to eat with readiness for the Lord's return. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, do you eat with readiness for the Lord's return? Do you live in such a way as to be ready for the Lord's return? Are you living in light of His coming? The scriptures tell us that the Lord's return is imminent. It's a word that means it could be any moment. The Puritans would call that behavior watchfulness. In other words, Christians being ready and living with an urgency, with an eye to the Lord's coming. Is there a watchfulness about your walk with God? Matthew chapter 24 and 25, we're in the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus is warning his heroes about the day and the hour of his return. And he says, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He says, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's saying, watch therefore, for you, you, you know neither the day nor the hour. And the emphasis there is, be ready, stay awake, watch, be diligent. One person has said, our days should be shaped that if the Lord returns this evening, that there will be nothing that I will regret. Another person has said, what we have here is a sacrifice of atonement and a meal of communion with their God. In other words, as they're eating this meal, they are thinking, they're talking, they're rejoicing, they're thinking about what it is that God is doing. So friends, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is the, the fruit of this Passover meal, we are to consider and contemplate all that Christ has done for us and all that Christ has in store for us. 
It's a meal that roots itself in the gospel, but anticipates his joyous return. We look back at his death, but we look forward to his return. Now, friends, this is fleshed out in 1 Corinthians 11, this passage that talks about the Lord's Supper. And the Apostle Paul says this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. You see, there's a future look to the celebration of the Lord's table. And we need to recognize that. So this is watchfulness. It's wonderful. There's a meal where we are communing with the Lord. And we're, we're going through all these things that, that are wonderful about our relationship with Him and what He's done. But then we move from the sacrifice to the meal. Now we move to the judgment. We are to avoid the judgment. It says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood of, uh, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now I want you to notice in the heart of these two verses is a statement. It's the end of verse 12. It says, I am the Lord. This statement is a hinge. It's a hinge between how God will handle the Egyptians, that's verse 12, and how God will handle the Hebrews. I am the Lord. The one who is exercising judgment will exercise it justly, both on the Egyptians and on the Hebrews. The Lord here is a continental divide between hard-heartedness and humility, rebellion and trust, unbelief and faith. The Lord is standing between them to exercise either wrath or favor. So we have then this, first of all, a wrathful, this wrathful judgment on the Egyptians. God is saying, I'll pass through the land of Egypt. I will strike the firstborn. In other words, I will execute that judgment on the gods of Egypt. I will judge all who are followers of the God, the gods of Egypt. Why? Because I am the Lord. Rebellion will ultimately lead in judgment, which will be justice executed. So what is God saying to the Hebrews? Now remember, Moses is recording this for the second generation that's getting ready to go into the promised land. He wants them to see something. He wants them to know something. But even as God speaks now through Moses to the congregation, he wants that particular audience to be aware of what is going on. He's declaring these things to the Hebrews. He wants them to know that he is coming to judge. He wants them to see that his wrath will be satisfied against all hard-heartedness and ungodliness regardless of whether they're Egyptian or Hebrew. And that then includes them. And he's emphasizing that unless you act by faith and apply the blood, you are doomed to suffer his righteous wrath. Now friends, that's the, the wrathful judgment on the Egyptians. We move now to the merciful favor on the Hebrews. This is the other side 
This is, this is the, the, the other side of the hinge, so to speak. God is saying that if the congregation will listen and obey by faith, that his righteous wrath will be averted. It's not because they're without sin. It's because they're sinful, just like the Egyptians, but God is merciful to sinners through the blood of the Passover lamb. That's the difference. Exodus chapter 20, I won't read it all for sake of time, but in Exodus chapter 20, not Exodus, Ezekiel chapter 20, and verses 2 through 8, God is talking to Israel about their rebellion. And in this passage, in verse 7, he says, And I said to them, Cast away the detestable things uh, your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away their detestable things uh, their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Now, friends, here's the reality. The people of Israel grew up in Goshen. They were not far away from the Egyptians. They interacted with the Egyptians even though they were slaves. And in the context of being in that culture, they began to embrace that culture. And they began to embrace the gods of that culture. And they still didn't let those gods go completely. And that's what this is referring to. They were not ignoring the gods of Egypt. They were embracing and accepting the gods of Egypt and their deities. So again, the plagues were not just for the Egyptians and not just for Pharaoh. They were also for Israel to say, look, let go of these Egyptian gods. They are nothing. I am. And I am your God. And yet we find Even as they go into the wilderness, what do they do? They complain and they rebel and they fight against their God. So the Hebrews and the Egyptians, friends, are equally guilty. God didn't choose the Hebrews because they deserved it. No, he chose them because he is God. He covenanted with them. He kept his covenant. Now the question for us is this. If if we identify ourselves as God's children... In what ways are we going after the gods and deities of our culture? What in our culture have we embraced to the neglect of actually listening to and following Christ? And friends, that's a a question I ask you today in light of all that has happened these past couple of weeks. What is driving that? What What is really capturing your heart? How are you observing and how are you contemplating these things? Now, let's bring this to a close. God's wrath is real, so is his mercy. As we flash forward to the Lord's Supper, I want us to consider three things. Number one, our new beginning. Our new beginning. And because of our new beginning, we live by his strength. The Lord's Supper marks and reminds us of our new beginning. It takes us back to that time when we remember God working in our hearts and drawing us in. It reminds us of our awakening to the gospel and the joy of our salvation. Friends, it is good to remember who we once were and the magnificent radical change that God has made and is making in our lives today. It all helps us. God is at work um, 
making us to be more and more like Him. That's progressive sanctification. He is at work growing us. And that is only by His strength and the Holy Spirit's counsel and guidance through His Word that has brought us this far. But we have a new beginning. Just like Israel had a new beginning, so do we. And just like Israel, we are to live our lives from this new beginning by faith in God. Secondly, not only do we have a new beginning, but we have a new identity. God has created us to be connected and in fellowship with His church. So as we celebrate the elements, we are also taking time to rejoice in our unity as the body of Christ local. Be Gateway Bible Church this morning. As well as to rejoice in the body of Christ universal, wherever it is around the world. And so we can pause and think that our brothers and sisters around the world, in Bolivia, in Ukraine, in China, in Honduras, in Russia, in Michigan, in Florida, in Oakland, in Los Angeles, are, are stopping today and celebrating the Lord's Supper, doing the same thing that we are. Why? Because we're united together by faith, because of the blood. So we have a new beginning, a new identity that that means that we're part of the family of God, the body of Christ. We are the church. But third, we have a new hope. And we long for His return. The Lord's Supper is a time to look back at what Christ has done on the cross, but it's also a time to look ahead to what God is still yet to do. Now, our friends, our, our world is blanketed by darkness at presence on many levels. There's a real and historic injustice to people of color. We need to recognize that. There's an actual injustice also because of sinful criminal activity. We've seen that. Sin is running rampant. But friends, that is the nature of the world when the restraints of the law and order in a society are removed The sinful wickedness of man's hearts are revealed. But friends, our job is the same in that darkness. It is to shine the light of the gospel in that darkness. Not to get caught up with the passions of our culture, but to think through them carefully and biblically because we know that there is hope in the gospel. Friends, as Christians, we must be a thinking people but a thinking people who also feel. But our thinking must be because of the Word of God. And our emotions must flow out of that in a right way. So we live hoping for society to change for the better. We, We live doing our part as we can to influence that change in the right way. But with the backdrop of the certain hope of the Lord's return. Friends, this is the Lord's Passover, and we want to celebrate now what Jesus Christ has instituted, and that is the Lord's Supper. And let me invite you just to ready yourselves. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to together um, just partake of these elements. And let's just take a moment to think and to reflect and to ready our hearts for uh, the observation which you think about it, goes all the way back to this moment in time, this Passover meal. And just think about what Christ has done for you 
and how he is that lamb and how as that sacrifice, his blood has paid for your sin. And now through him, you're reconciled. You can look back in your life and remember how he did that. You can look and see where you are today, but you can also look ahead to the future. The Lord's Supper is something that grounds us. It, it, it kind of breaks through all the, the stuff that's happening in our culture and says, remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done. Remember what is most important. Let's pause and reflect for a bit. We use grape juice at our church. I don't know what you're using in your house, but we're going to take this and to remind ourselves just in the order of things that what Jesus Christ is, did is he shed his body. There was a sacrifice that was made. It was the blood that was shed for our sins. And we want to drink this now in remembrance of him. reflect on Exodus chapter 12 and as they prepared the sacrifice, as they had the lamb with them for those few days, but then as twilight came and they sacrificed that lamb, that the blood was put on the doorposts. And Lord, that was the means by which your wrath was averted. And as we, as we drink this juice, we're reminded, Lord, that we are we're worthy of your wrath. In other words, we are guilty. And Lord, by your kindness and grace, you have granted us forgiveness through your blood. We thank you, Lord, for that. Now, friends, as we take the, the bread or the cracker that represents his body, you'll notice that I did the juice first in line with what's going on in Exodus 12, because after that, then they enjoyed the meal. And so as we take this, we want to think about what Jesus Christ did in coming and giving his body. He took on flesh, became like us, faced the struggles and the passions that, that are, are present in this world, and yet was sinless, and is a perfect example for us, but more than that, he is our savior. He is our sacrifice. So let's take this and eat this now in remembrance of him. we look back in our lives and we marvel at the way that you orchestrated our salvation. We think of the way that you were entering into our lives and Lord, that, that, that time when we were awakened to the truth of the gospel, Lord, that is all because of you. And Lord, we, we continue to reflect in our lives even up to today and see how you have grown us, how you are growing us, and that is all rooted again in what you've done on the cross. And Lord, we look ahead, and right now that looking ahead on this earth seems very uncertain and unstable. And yet, Lord, we can look ahead with confidence 
that you are our sovereign God, fully in control, and the future that you have promised us is sure. And the, the calling you have given us, Lord, is still what you want us to do, to be the light in the darkness. And so, Lord, as we reflect on this, this Lord's Supper, your, your body and your blood, Lord, may it be a, a means, a fuel for us to do what you've called us to do, to live rightly in this world, uh, to, to do our part, to be, to be uh, peacemakers in this world, to, to bring sense to what is going on. And then, Lord, ultimately to, to realize the hope that you are going to return one day. And, Lord, if, if you call us home before then, that's your choice. But, Lord, help us to live for your glory as we continue to face each day and each week and each month and each year. And, Lord, to do that in such a way that would please you. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us. We are in awe of you. Strengthen us, Lord, for this week in particular, we ask in your precious name. Amen.